Alrighty, we've been working our way through the Old Testament kind of chronologically up until very recently uh, because now we're in the prophets and they're kind of scattered around on the timeline. I did provide you a chart, but let's take a look at this chart real quick. Uh, this is just a little piece of it to show you. We're going to be working with Micah today. And you can see Micah ministered during the same time as Isaiah. They probably knew each other. And during the same time as Hosea. Hosea ministered to the north. That's why the kings there are in yellow and his middle line is yellow. But Micah was to the south, and I don't have the list of the kings there. We're going to look at Micah today, maybe Hosea next week. And then we're going to take a break to look at some messianic prophecies. So rather than just hitting them as I get to each book, I'm just going to look at several together over two or three weeks. What did the prophets say about the coming of the Messiah? Micah had something to say. We'll look in a couple weeks. Um, Isaiah had a lot to say. We'll look in a couple weeks. So we'll just group it all together and do a study on that. The prophets generally had a pattern. In other words, you read through almost all the prophets in the Bible, and they did two things. The first thing they did is they told, usually Israel, but sometimes the foreign nations, what they were doing wrong, the sins that they were committing against God. And they didn't pull any punches. They laid it out. These are all the horrible things you're doing, and here are all the consequences because of it. And those consequences included God's judgment. So they would condemn the people and tell them about God's judgment in gory detail. Some of the things that are written in some of the prophets are actually disgusting. You don't even want to read them. But they're just telling, the, telling them how it is. This results in this. And then, just when you think it's just all doom and gloom, then they give a little bit of hope. They tell, even though you're doing evil and God's going to destroy you and punish you, you have a bright future. And that future, more often than not, is tied to the messianic hope. So all these bad things are going to happen. God's going to judge you. But in the end of days, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Uh, everything's going to be paradise again for the nation of Israel. So he always hung out that hope. Micah's just like the others. He gives the warnings, talks about the consequences, and then Israel's future. So we're going to just look at a sampling of that this morning. Micah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Micah during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Here goes, verse 3. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. To me, this is one of the things that makes the prophets hard to understand. Usually there's three things that we wrestle with, at least I do in the prophets. One is this flowery, flowery language. They give poetic expressions, and I just don't like poetry. I don't get it. It, it bores me, and it confuses me, and I'm not sure what they're saying. And there's a lot of that and the prophets. The other thing that confuses us is they mention all these names of cities and places and kings. I'm going to do to you just like I did to Gezer. Who? What happened in Gezer? And we, we like half the story because we don't know what happened in these places and we don't know what these names mean. And then the third thing is messianic prophecy and other prophecy sometimes is a little hard to figure out. It's like, is he talking about now or is he talking about later? Is this literal or is this figurative? So this would be one of those examples where is this literal or is this figurative? And it's definitely poetry. 
the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. What? What does that mean? He treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, and like water rushing down a slope. When did that ever happen? Israel was punished, but that never happened. So there's two ways we can look at this. First of all, let's look at the obvious. He's talking about judgment. God is going to judge. This is not pretty language. God's going to come down, tread the earth, and it's going to melt. Ah, so we know this is not a positive thing. But is it literal? Is God really going to come down and melt the mountains and, and do stuff like that? Well, there's other passages of Scripture. For example, it says in the latter days, when God's going to wrap up everything, he's going to remake the heavens and the earth and melt them with a fervent heat. It says that when the Messiah comes and his foot set, steps down on the Mount of Olives, there's going to be this huge earthquake that's going to rip the mountain apart. And it says every valley will be lifted and every mountain brought low. So maybe there is some sort of literal element to this in the future. But for them, there, this didn't happen. This was just judgment talk. Maybe it was talking about the future. Maybe it was talking about them. Then, I don't really know. Why is God going to judge the earth? Why is he so mad? What's going on? There's where he goes, verse 5. All of this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. More poetry. Jacob means Israel, so he said it twice. All of this because of Jacob's transgression. All of this because of the sins of Israel. Said the same thing twice. That happens a lot in the Bible too, and it's Jewish poetry. Therefore, verse 6, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble. Samaria was the capital of Israel. Jerusalem was the capital of Judah. So I will make the capital of Israel a heap of rubble. I'm going to utterly destroy you. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Verse 9, for her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. The disease of sin in northern Israel, in Samaria, has trickled down and infected the holy city, Jerusalem. They're all wicked. Idolatry everywhere. Nastiness everywhere. It's bad. Her wound is incurable. Micah says at least three times in his five or six chapters, whatever it is, her wound is incurable. He says it in different ways. Well, one of the things I've learned about God is he never, maybe never is not the right word, but he doesn't seem to rain down his judgment when there's still hope. Remember that Noah? Yeah. He waited till there was only one good guy left. He could have destroyed it when there was only 10 good guys left or 50 or 1,000 or 10,000. He waited till the whole world got bad. Then he destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah, the same thing. He waits till the very end. Then he judges when there's like no hope left. So he says at least three times through Micah in this book, She's at that point now. It's time to destroy Israel and Judah because there's no hope. Her wound is incurable. So in chapter 1, just to summarize it, God's going to destroy Israel because of her wickedness. And it specifically mentions in that chapter idolatry. But then there's more. Chapter 2. Woe to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. 
Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. Three verses, three sins. One, plotting evil in their beds. Two, coveting their neighbor's property. And three, defrauding them and stealing their property. Plotting in their beds, more poetry. Basically, he's saying, before they even wake up in the morning, they're already scheming to do evil. It's like their bed is their, their place to sit and plot bad things. It just, it's a way of saying how evil they really are. They can't even get out of bed before they're doing evil. There was this thing going around on the internet a while back. It was like this prayer. Maybe you read it. Let me read it for you. Dear Lord, so far I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't lost my temper, haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. <laughs> and from then on, I'm going to need a lot of help. We kind of say it tongue-in-cheek because we know how prone to chaos we are. Well, for them, it wasn't tongue-in-cheek. God was saying, this is what you people do. You, the moment your eyes pop open, you're plotting mischief. God says he's going to destroy Israel. Don't think he's going to destroy the good people with the bad people. God never does that. In most instances, there are no good people left. And in those instances where there's a few, Noah gets on a boat Lot flees Sodom and Gomorrah. God never punishes the good people with the bad people. So the fact that he's going to destroy Samaria, oh man. When I ran across the word theft and the word coveting, I immediately thought of the Ten Commandments. They stole property, that's against the Ten Commandments. They coveted, that's against the Ten Commandments. So I got the Ten Commandments here for you. I'm going to look through them. And as we go through the rest of Micah, we're going to tabulate how many of the Ten Commandments that they're breaking? You shall have no other gods before me. That was the first. The second commandment is don't make idols. Don't bow down and worship them. Third commandment is, you know, don't take God's name in vain. Fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath. Fifth commandment, honor your parents. Sixth commandment, don't murder. Seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. Eighth commandment, don't steal. Ninth commandment, don't lie or commit perjury. And the tenth commandment, don't covet. So, so far, just in these two chapters, they've broken the first, the second, the eighth, and the tenth. And we're just getting into the book. Let's see where they go from here. One of the things that really grabbed my attention, this one isn't one of the Ten Commandments, but if you've been with me the last few weeks, I'm going to read to you a sin right now that we've heard before. It seems like several of the prophets mention this same sin over and over again. It's obviously a problem that they have. Let me just quote to you what he says. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Now, if a liar and a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, he would be just the prophet for these people. So they tell the true prophets to shut up. We don't want to hear anything you have to say. But the prophets who talk about things they want to hear about, like wine and beer, that's the prophet for us. Can you imagine being the beer prophet? The wine prophet. Bring me another one. I've used this illustration before because it blows my mind. You go to a doctor because you're not feeling just right. And the doctor says, oh, yes, you've got such and such a cancer. 
hate the doctor, threaten to kill him if he ever tells you again. Then go to another doctor and say, tell me what I want to hear or I'll kill you. You're the picture of health. I've never seen anybody as healthy as you are. That's what the game these guys were playing. They didn't want to hear the truth. And the crazy thing is, doctor number one says, but there's a cure. You're terminal, but there's a cure. One more word out of your mouth and I kill you. That's what they were doing. Not so different than what we do today. You know, there's a lot of popular prophets on the TV and radio and sell a lot of books. And I use the word loosely. They're false prophets, but they say things people want to hear, and they sell a lot of books, and they make a lot of money. Hey, there's several good pastors out there, too, who tell the truth and teach the word for exactly what it says. But there's a lot of bad ones out there. Listen to this. The time will come, I'm in 2 Timothy, the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. We are in those days where a lot of people just say what people want to hear. Feel good, pastors. It's all going to work out. God's going to bless you. You're going to be rich. Everything's going to be prosperous. No worries. Just have enough faith and it'll all be good. Well, didn't they read the last book of the Bible? It's not all going to be good. There's going to be chaos on this planet. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be horrible. It's going to end good. But if you just have enough faith, you'll be rich. Well, I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. We were talking uh, just the other day, a couple guys, about why aren't we all rich? I mean, God loves us, so why doesn't he give us all sorts of money? I'm sure there's lots of reasons we're not all rich. The first guy said, we are all rich. We just don't recognize it. He said, I, I know what you're saying, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about why don't we all win the lottery and have a billion dollars? What do you think it would do to you? Think you can handle it? I know you're saying, yeah, I could handle it. I think if you could handle it, you'd have it. I know a lot of people, their lives get totally ruined when they come upon the lottery. Let me show you how they become ruined. First, they never know who their friends are anymore. All the friends they thought they had now want their money. Now they don't like them anymore because they won't give them all their money, and now they've lost their friends. Now they make new friends. But are they really friends? Or do they just want their money? That's the first thing. And this isn't just friends, this is family too. Uncle Fred, who could never keep a solid job, and he, he's living from hand to mouth because he's a wingnut and that's how he lives, now he wants your money. Well, you're not going to give it to him. Now his sister is mad at you, that's your aunt, and then your mom hears it from the sister, now your mom's mad at you, can't you help out Uncle Fred, man? Help! He's your family. And it just goes on and on like that. Then there's uh, the other part of it is we have our jobs. We strive for things. Man, just if I can keep this job and, and make the next promotion, I can buy that condo in Maui. And, and you work for it. And then you, you don't get there and you get discouraged. But then you get there and you buy it and you're so excited. All of a sudden you got everything you want. Now what do you do? You're bored. You don't have to work anymore. Idle hands, idle mind becomes the devil's playground. Chaos reigns. 
For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, but instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them great number of teachers that say what they want to hear. Feels good, but it'll kill you in the end. So we've only looked briefly at two chapters, and we've got idolatry, covetousness, theft, plotting evil, and rejecting God's words and warning. And yet there's more. Micah 3. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Now, we do have some bad leaders in this country, but we've got a lot of good leaders, too. We've got a lot of judges that will not take bribes. We've got a lot of good people in our government. A lot of bad ones, but a lot of good ones. Our government is still sound. I know those of you who are politically active are going, Steve, you're just blind. I'm not blind. I know what's going on. But I've also been to Mexico. And I've also been to Turkey. And I read the news. We're doing pretty good here. Case in point, went to Mexico last week. Guy I went with was telling me about some ministry he'd done there in the past. I was telling him about some ministry I'd done there in the past. And he said they collected a truck full of toys to give to poor children over there. Pulls up to the border. The guard says, I want to see your truck. He looks in the back of the truck. He says, what's this? He says, this is toys for poor children. We're with a ministry called such and such, and we, we bless poor people. And the guard says, that'll be $7,000 to get across the border. The guy said, no. First of all, I don't have $7,000. And secondly, this is for poor children. What are you thinking? You're out of here. Give him a little bribe, a big bribe. He'll let you across. Don't. You're stuck right there. Well, this guy, was, he was brilliant. He didn't turn around and go home. He just pulled off to the side and started praying. He said, God, you've got to get me through the border. This isn't right. This is wrong. You know it's wrong. These, these kids over there and all these donations, praying, praying, praying for the longest time. And then a bunch of, I guess, federales showed up. And they saw this truck parked over there. And one of the federales said, come here. Why are you parked over there? He said, I got all these toys for these poor children. And this guy said he wouldn't let me through unless I gave him $7,000. He said, why are you giving toys to poor children? He says, well, we're Christians. And he started telling them about God and about ministry. And the guy started to cry. And he said, you know, my parents are in the ministry. Wait here. I'll see what I can do. And he goes over, and he waves the guy through and gets him through the border. That's how it is in other countries. That's not how it is here. That's how it was in ancient Israel. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. And her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. We're Israel. We're the Jews. We're God's chosen people. We're fine. Uh-uh. My dad was a pastor. I'll be all right. Uh-uh. I go to church every Sunday. Therefore, I'm fine. Like that's a get-out-of-jail-free card going to church? That doesn't impress God. But that's what they were doing. Oh, we, we, we got God on our side. We're fine. Chapter 6, her rich men are violent, her people are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. I mean, these prophets pulled no punches. You guys are just a bunch of liars. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. Okay, idolatry, covetousness, theft, plotting evil, rejecting God's words and warnings, violence, bribery and perversion of justice, lying. Whoa. We're running fast out of commandments here. And there's more. Chapter 7. The godly 
have been swept from the land. Not one upright man remains. All men lie in wait to shed blood. Each hunts his brother with a net. Everybody who's left in this evil nation is a murderer. Could you imagine living in a town like that? Yes, we have it bad, but not nearly as bad as they had it. And you know that's one of the commandments about murder. So we've got our Ten Commandments. And so far, we can see that they've broken one, two, six, eight, nine, and ten. One, two, three, four, five, six. And there's still more. Micah 7. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. We've got to add number five now. They did not honor their parents. So now we've got commandment number one, commandment number two, commandment number five, commandment number six, commandment number eight, commandment number nine, commandment number ten. These are the ones that are out and out just said. I'm almost certain they broke all the others too. They were evil people. What did they care about God's commandments? I'm sure they were not honoring the Sabbath even though it doesn't say that. Of course they weren't. The murderers, adulterous, idolaters, I'm sure they were keeping the Sabbath. Yeah, right. Well, a couple of my kids graduated, one from high school, one from first year in college, one going from middle school to high school. So report cards, grades, scholarships, graduation ceremonies have been on our mind lately. So I couldn't help but thinking of the Ten Commandments it's like a graduation test, or just a test, an exam, a final. How would we do, how would they do, if they were put up against a Ten Commandment exam? So let me put up the scorecard. This is a typical grading scale. 90 to 100, you get an A. 80 to 80 89.9, you get a B. C, 70 to 80, you get a C. 60 to 70, you get a D. And under 69, or 50, 60, you get an F. That's a typical grading scale. But it's only 10 questions. So if you miss one, the grade starts to go down pretty pronto. You can miss one and get an A in the Ten Commandment final, if that's our standard. We'll see in a moment something different. Two would be a B, three would be a C, four would be a D, five or more would be an F, which I think is a pretty liberal scale. You get half of them wrong before you get an F. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the Ten Commandment test. When you came in this morning, you were given the Ten Commandments on a little sheet of paper with a little place you can make a check right in front of the Ten. So I'm going to go through the Ten Commandments with you. And if you broke the commandment, you go ahead and put a little check by it. I'm going to give you the same safety net I gave Beth Sarshalom yesterday. If you're sitting by your spouse, you do not have to check the I committed adultery box because you know they're peeking over your shoulder. So don't even, just ignore that one. You know in your heart and your mind where you're at on that one. But you've got to be honest with yourself on this test. So I'm going to go through each one. If you think you might have broken it, you've got to put a check by it. And then we'll score you at the end and see if you passed or failed. The first commandment goes like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of, the out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, you might say, I was raised in a Christian home. I never worshipped any other god. I don't have to check this one. 
Maybe. But the way I read the Bible, anything that's number one in your life, that is your God. Anything that has ever been in God's place in your life, that's your God. So the way I look at it, if God has not always been first in your life, career, children, spouse, hot rods, whatever, if anything has taken God's place in your life, in my opinion, that's a check. On my scorecard, that's a check. I have failed in that arena. I have broken the first commandment. Have you ever bowed down to an idol? That would be the second commandment. Um, you said, yeah, I was raised a Buddhist or I was raised Hindu or some other religion that bows before its statues. You'd have to check that one. Now, if you were, you know, said, hey, I spent my whole life as a Jew. I spent my whole life as a Christian. I've never bowed down before an idol. Maybe you get a pass on this one. Maybe. Because there is one passage of scripture that says covetousness is as idolatry. So maybe if you've ever coveted anything, maybe you've broken this one too. Check. I believe the Bible when it says covetousness is idolatry, so I put a check by mine. By the way, I'm done with sharing about my sheet. <laughs> Number three, the third commandment. Have you ever taken God's name in vain? Been really surprised about something and said, oh my God! Isn't that taking God's name in vain? Or been upset about something and sworn and taken God's name in vain? You can do it in that way or in the, that other way. And yet there's a third way to take God's name in vain. When you represent God and then misrepresent him. Everybody knows you're the Christian and then you're caught stealing at work. Or you're just an idiot. Nobody likes you. And yet you tell everybody you're Christian and they should all go to church. And you're like the worst testimony they've ever seen. Of course, if you're that person, you don't think you're that person, so you'll never check this box. But I'm just being real with you, you know. <laughs> that is taking God's name in vain, too. We move on to number four. Ever broken the Sabbath? Now, if you're a Gentile and you don't think you ever had to keep the Sabbath, you get a pass on this one. God only told the Jews to keep the Sabbath. So if you're Jewish and have broken the Sabbath, put a check there. But if you were a Gentile raised thinking you had to keep the Sabbath, even though you didn't, and you intentionally chose to disobey, put a check there. Because it's what's in the heart that really matters. That's what God judges. For the rest of you, this is free bonus. That's your, your free pass. Free parking right there. Number five, have you ever dishonored your parents? All of you non-orphans in the church, put a check there. We will move on. Number six, have you ever com committed murder? You're saying, another one I don't have to put a check by. Listen to what the Bible says. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. See, from God's perspective, murder, all sins start in the heart. The fact that you don't have the occasion to realize your sin doesn't mean the sin still isn't there. You know, I'd kill that sucker if I could only get away with it. God considers you a murderer. You would do it if you could. You're not brave enough because you don't want to go to jail but you'd do it if you could. You have enough hate in your heart to actually commit murder? Put a check right there. By the way, if you're starting to feel really bad right about now, that's good. Because that first doctor tells you about the cancer. That's not good news. But he's got the cure. 
So hang in with me for a moment. I'll share with you the cure. Or just plug your ears and say, I'm not going to listen to anything else this man has to say. I want somebody to tell me I'm a good person. I know of one good person. His name is Jesus. If you're as good as him, you don't have to take this test. If you're not, he's the standard. All right, ladies and men, number seven, the adultery one. Say, I have never cheated on my spouse. Jesus said, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The Bible is male-oriented, but the principles go male and female. Harlequin romances. Maybe you just really think Thor is a hottie and you wish he was your husband. Number eight, ever taken something that wasn't yours to take? The eighth commandment is thou shalt not steal. Now, theft doesn't have to be a car or somebody's wallet. It could be that really cool pen at work that nobody would miss. I think theft is also lying on your IRS form. That's stealing from the government. Now, maybe you disagree, and that's fine. If you've never taken something that wasn't yours, do not check this one. But if you have, if there's that little twinge of guilt in you right now, just check it off. You know, let's say I had five gangrenous fingers. Well, four. I'm not sure about the fifth. Feels a little whingy, but I'm just not sure. Doc, take off these four, and I'll risk number five. You realize if you risk it, it'll kill you. All right, take off the fifth, too. If you're not sure, just check it off. It's better to get the hard news taken care of now so we can fix it later than to just, you know, fudge on something and never deal with it honestly. I ever tell you about, you know, I look at my hand, I have this horrible scar there. I'm a klutzy guy. I have broken bones, scarred my, have gotten stitches and casts. And Well, this one, I remember I went into the doctor and it was gross. It laid it open. They just had me suck my, stick my hand in this pail of disinfectant for like 20, 30 minutes, and I'm feeling this cold medicine in my open wound. It was like, ugh, it made me want to vomit. I hated it. But I guess they didn't want me to get an infection, so it was worth it. And then they had to sew it up. So um, this is going to hurt, but we're going to give you one shot, and that'll take away the pain so we can give you the stitches. So they gave me the shot. Man, that hurt worse than the cut that I first got. I could have said something very unkind had I not controlled my tongue at that moment. And the doctor waited a few minutes and said, okay, it should be, it should be, it should be numb now. And he took the, the needle and thread and poked me, and I went, ow! Oh, it's not numb yet? Here, let me give you another shot. Ow! <laughs> waited another 15 minutes or so. Okay, it should be numb now. Took the needle. Ow! Oh, it's not numb yet? Let me give you another shot. No! Just do it! <laughs> Enough of the shots. By the time he was on, like, the last three stitches, it started to go numb. <laughs> Ah. <laughs> Have you ever committed perjury? See, the ninth commandment really is not thou shalt not lie. People call it that. And yes, lying is a sin. But this is a specific kind of lying in the Ten Commandments. It's lying to an official. Perjury. Literally, a judge. Maybe you've never lied to an official. Great, then don't check this one. 
But like I said, lying is a sin. And if you've ever done it, check this one. If you don't feel like you need to check this one, check this one. Because <laughs> you're lying to yourself. <laughs> and number 10. This to me is the most, this one's the hardest for me to understand. You shall not covet your neighbor's stuff. First of all, it's hard to understand because we don't use the word covet in our culture today. We don't even know what it means. Covet is synonymous with lust, but not in a sexual way necessarily. It could go either way. If you covet your neighbor's wife, that might be a lustful thing, but you can covet your neighbor's property. Lust just really means a strong, passionate desire for something. That's what lust means. It can be sexual, but doesn't have to be. Covetousness is a synonym, a strong desire to possess somebody else's stuff. That's a sin. Not sure why, but God says it is, and I believe him. Maybe, and I'm just winging it here, but maybe because it's pure selfishness. There's nothing good about it. It's just all about you. I don't know. I just know it's wrong, and if that's been a sin of yours, put a check there. So you can do the math. There's only 10 parts to this quiz. How'd you do? Let's look at our chart. If you missed one, you got an A. If you missed two, you got a B. If you missed three, you got a C. If you missed four, you got a D. Five or more, you're going to hell. <laughs> but I'm not ready for the good news yet. I got more bad news. The Vail School District, Tucson Unified School District College test scale. There's different types of tests. See, when I was in college, they had some tests that they graded on the curve. You ever heard of those? I remember I had one test. I think I got a 30% on the test. And I don't remember if that gave me a B plus or an A. I was towards the top of the class because he graded on a curve. He was a, a new teacher. He was a bad teacher. He didn't test well. And when everybody in his class failed and his brightest students got it at 30%, he had to do something, which was just grade on the curve. I also took other tests that didn't have grades. They just said, you'll pass this or fail this test. There's no A's or B's or D's, pass or fail. So here's the bad news. The Ten Commandment is a pass or fail test. It's not graded on the curve. You have to get 100% or you fail. Let me read to you from James chapter 2. Whoever breaks one commandment is guilty of breaking them all. For the same one who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Even if you don't commit adultery, you have become a lawbreaker if you commit murder. So the Ten Commandments is a package deal. You either break them or you keep them. There's no in-between. Pass or fail. So I can say to you, without any shame or embarrassment, that I have failed the test. Why do I have no shame or embarrassment? For two reasons. First reason is because I know you all failed it too. So none of you are going to make fun of me because we're in the same boat together. And if you don't think so, well, that's unfortunate. Other reason, because I've already dealt with my shame and embarrassment. I laid it at the feet of the cross. I told Jesus I was so sorry. And I asked him to forgive me. And he told me, my slate is clean. And in his eyes, I get an A++ with a smiley face and a star. Not because I deserve it, but because that's his grade. And he gave it to me as a gift. 
when he took my grade on the cross. That's why he died on the cross, to pay for my grade, not his. And when he was up there, he gave me his grade. The Bible puts it this way. Christ died for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It was a swap. So, you have cancer of the soul. It is terminal. You will die. And cancerous souls get thrown into hell. But there is a cure for this cancer. It's Jesus Christ. If you will turn from your sin, reject your sin, tell him you're sorry, and trust him, follow him. Tell him you believe he died for your sins and rose again. You will be cured, and you will certainly, definitely go to heaven. The worst place you can be is the prophet saying, I don't want to hear you talk anymore. Shut up. Give me a prophet of beer and wine. The truth hurts, but there is a cure, and that's better than the bad news. So if you've not yet become a Christ follower, I urge you to do so. It's the best decision you'll ever make in your life and it will follow you forever. You will be cleansed and forgiven of your sins. But you have to make the decision. It has to be a conscious choice. Not, um, I've gone to church all my life, of course I follow Jesus. That's not a conscious choice. You've got to make the decision, Lord, I am yours. I repent of my sin. I choose to follow you from this day on. I urge you to make that decision. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, thank you so much for not leaving us to suffer the consequences of our own sins. Thank you for, for sharing with us hope. Thank you for blessing us and keeping us. I pray that everybody who's hearing my voice would make the decision to follow you. Amen. Hey, before I let them lead us in a final song, I told you the prophets did two things. They condemned and they provided hope. Let me read to you what Micah says after all this condemnation. And it applies to us too who have taken the Ten Commandment test. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his, of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities in the depths of the sea. The Lord loves you, and the Lord is dying, literally, to forgive you of your sins. And men... Please join me over here by this uh, speaker for our monthly man huddle. The rest of you, by God's grace, we'll see you Wednesday night. I am live now. Okay. All right, come on over here. All right. Ben is our guy. All right. So he's going to do our huddle today. Come on in tight. And um, let's hear what Ben's got to share with us. Well, here is my uh, little knickknacks that I would like to pass out. We would be... Uh, reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 4 for those of y'all that have Bibles. So I guess take some of these and take one, pass them around and, and uh, 
Just a little visual aid here. Take one. And cool. Pass them around. And uh, the, I got some notes here. Okay. Uh, uh, just, just so you know, the speaker is only for the internet. So you'll have to speak up with the guys here. Okay. Well, I need to. I was supposed to turn this off, but apparently since I'm not, not getting any feedback, yeah, I told him to turn it everything off. Just okay. To speak up. Okay. Certain numbers in the Bible appear on a regular basis, like the numbers 40, the numbers 12, uh, the number 3. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of spiritual significance to these numbers. A lot has been written about them, and a lot of it's just basically speculation and some of it's contradictory. But a lot of it, there's a lot of wisdom also in so-called biblical numerology. Take, for example, the number three. Uh, three is considered to be a, a divine number or a godly number, uh, like the number of the Trinity, the persons in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay? Or in a godly relationship, between a man and a woman, a, mar a covenant marriage, okay, with God as the head. And that's what this little knick-knack here represents. Uh, like the pink might be the woman, the blue might be the man, and the gold is Christ, okay? Now, a man and a woman into enter into a godly relationship with Christ. And you'll notice these lines are straight. They've got been in transport. But as the man and the woman grow in their relationship closer to God, they automatically grow closer to each other. As they grow farther in their relationship with God, they also grow farther from each other. Now, it's possible for the man and the woman to bend the line, grow closer to each other without having a godly relationship, but that's not what we want, okay? As brothers in Christ, okay, our walk is to have a godly relationship with our spouse as well as with our Lord and Savior, okay? Now, so you'll also notice one more thing. if, if Say the man moves closer to his relationship with the Lord, but his spouse doesn't. Once again, you seem to move farther apart. So both have to move closer to the Lord. Okay? That's just, just a little nick, just a little visual reference there. Uh, the passage I wanted to read, Ecclesians 4:12, uh, 11 and 12. Uh, starting in verse 11, again, if two lie together, then they can have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, that threefold cord is what I would like to focus upon. The threefold cord is not quickly broken. Once again, there's that number three. It is a godly number, man, woman, and God. And it's also three is a stable number. Think about, think about a stool. 
a three-legged stool is stable, okay? You shorten one of the legs, lengthen one of the legs, it's still stable, it doesn't rock, okay? It may be kilter, but it's stable. By contrast, you take a four-legged stool and you change the length of just one of the legs, and what's gonna happen? It's gonna rock, okay? So three, apply that again to the relationship between a man and a woman and God. A fourth person comes in and that relationship is unstable. And I'm not necessarily talking about an unfaithful spouse. I'm also talking about like when the man and the woman grow apart and their relationship and farther from Christ. And if you bring in ungodly counsel, go to some counselor, some to advisor, okay, who is not necessarily godly, then the man, once again, you take these things, a counselor who is not godly may tend to have the man and the woman move closer together without considering their relationship in Christ. So that's the whole purpose of this knickknack and Ecclesiastes 4.12 is just to show that there is a godly relationship Okay, now, if there's strength in numbers, uh, once again, the number three is there. Think about it. A cord can sometimes get so thick, it's unwieldy, okay? So a three-fold cord is really the perfect size cord in this application. Now, I know everything breaks down in these analogies, so don't try to take it too far, but it's just, it's basically to show the godly relationship between man, woman, and, and, and Christ, okay? Now, I guess my challenge for you would be to go out and try to develop your relationship with your spouse, with your bride, with your girlfriend, whoever, okay? Have a godly relationship and check the Bible out for other occurrences of the number three. Where does it occur in the Bible, okay? I mean, the number three is found throughout. Uh, there's threefold blessings, okay? Uh, passages where Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are mentioned in the same passage. We as Trinitarians use those to be a proof text for the three personages of God. So that is my challenge to you. Just go out, read your Bibles, and try to find other passages in which the number three is very significant. Excellent. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate All right. It. Well done, sir. All right. You know our custom here. Hands in, guys. So they can hear us all the way in Nogales. Jesus on three. One, two, three. Jesus! Jesus! Right all right, guys. Right See you at lunch. You, all right. Thanks, Ken. God bless you. Okay.